0: This evening reading is taken from uh, Psalm 10, uh, Pew Bible page 547 and 48. It's quite long, so just uh, bear with me, and otherwise on screen as well as if you have mobile telephone. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak, who are caught in the scheme he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thought, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, Nothing will shake me. I will always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages from ambush. He murders the innocents, watching his secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed, they collapse, they fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Rise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief You consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Bring the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nation will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord. The desire of the afflicted, you encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks be to God. On uh, Friday, 22nd of July, 2011, about 600 teenagers were camping on a small island in a Norwegian lake. At 5pm, a man dressed as a policeman took a ferry to the lake. But the man was not a policeman. When he arrived, he told the teenagers to gather around him And when they did, he pulled out a pistol and an automatic rifle and he began to fire on them. And he continued his attack for an hour and a half on the island. Some teenagers were able to hide, uh, but there were very few places to hide. It was an island. Some tried to escape by swimming off the island to shore. He shot them in the water. In total, the man killed 69 people on the island that day, mainly teenagers. He also wounded 33. His name was, his name is Anders Breivik, and he was just 32 years old at the time. Many of us might remember uh, watching the news reports on that day in 2011. Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember what you were thinking when you read and saw that on the TV? If you were a Christian watching those news reports, it was very likely you'd be thinking, why, Lord, did you let that happen? How could you let that happen? Where were you today? That question is exactly the question in this psalm we're looking at today. Exactly the question. Psalm 10, as Eddie has said, is a type of psalm called a lament. And a lament is a, it's a passionate a cry of grief and sorrow. This psalm is a cry. And let's be honest, it's not cheerful. It's not cheerful. But it is real. Because that cry, why, Lord, did you let that happen? That was a real cry back in ancient times when this was written. And it's a real cry today across the world. Now we cannot be totally sure who exactly wrote this psalm. It probably was David, who seemed to write Psalm 9 as well. So that's David who would be king of Israel. So I'll refer to the author simply as the psalmist. So we're going to look at the psalm in three main sections. Three main sections, there's the heart of the cry, there's the content of the cry, and then the climax of the cry. So let's go through these. So first of all, there's the heart of the cry. Verse 1, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The end of the verse tells us the situation, times of trouble. And we'll see that one particular person, Anandas Breivik, if you like, is hunting down helpless people. That's what's going on. And the psalmist is really um, accusing God here. He's accusing God. You're not intervening, God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? God, it seems like you deliberately stood back when you could have chosen to intervene. Think of uh, a school playground. Now one school kid is a nasty bully, and he's beating up a first-year kid. Okay? He's knocked him to the ground, and he's kicking him. The headmaster walks out into the playground, and then he turns around, and he walks off into the far corner of the playground and hides behind the bike shelter and stands there that's what it feels like to this psalmist why O lord do you stand far off why are you doing nothing about this guy what's going on with you are you crazy do something and this cry this question is effectively repeated in verse 11 in verse 11 uh, look down with me at verse 11 It says there, um, in fact, verses 1 and 11 seem to be a kind of bookends for the first half of this psalm. Verse 11, it says, The man who's doing this evil says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Do you see that's very similar to verse 1, isn't it? This person doing evil thinks to himself, God is standing far off. He says, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. So not only is God not intervening, but here in verse 11, we have a second accusation. God, you're making it worse. God, because you're standing far off, you actually have made this guy bolder. It's like the bully in the playground knows the headmaster is standing far off at a distance in the corner. And because of that, he knows that if I beat up this first year, I'll get, I'll get away with it. Do you see the accusation here? God's forgotten. He never sees. I can do what I like. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? You don't intervene, you're making it worse. Now in today's world, we hear all kinds of accusations against God. I'm sure you've heard these. We hear we hear a lot of them from some uh, atheists. That's people who say that God does not exist. And they often say, if God exists, he's clearly not that great. He's either not powerful enough to intervene against the evil in this world, or he's not good enough to want to intervene. That's what you hear those things quite often, don't you? Now, as a Christian, that accusation can really trouble you. When we watch those news reports of Anders Breivik massacring sixty-nine teenagers, or we watch uh, reports last week, the other week, of, of a bus of fifty Yemeni school no, children just bombed. When we watch those reports, it can be easy to think those atheists. Are have they got a point? God, why would you allow that? Can you really be powerful and good? Have the atheists got a point? Why, Lord? What? Very confusing. And That's the heart of the cry here. That's the heart of the cry. Verses 1 and 11. Let's move on to uh, the content of the cry. So that's the bit in between those verses. Verses 2 to 10, the content of the cry. This section gives us more of the detail of what this uh, evil person has been thinking and doing. So let's look at that. Uh, verse 2 is a short summary, really. He says, The man here is a wicked man, it says, who hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. So this guy does evil he deliberately hunts down weak people, much like Anders Breivik did. Notice that he hates God. Oh, he hates God. Verse 3 says he reviles the Lord. He hates God. So, verse 4, he does not seek God. There is no room for God, it says. And verse 5, he rejects God's laws. Effectively, He is living as an atheist. He lives totally as if God is nothing. God is nothing. In fact, instead of following God, this man follows his own heart. Verse 3, it says, he boasts of the cravings of his heart. It's really striking, isn't it? Hunting the weak is a craving of his heart. And he boasts about it. He boasts because, verse 5, it makes him prosper. He gets what he wants. And because, verse 6, it makes him happy. Verse 6, let me read that. Verse 6. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. I will always be happy and never have trouble. How horrendous is that? Horrendous. It's a bit like... It's a bit like... um, a paedophile writes in his diary and then publishes it in the newspaper. And the entry says something like, I had a really happy day today. I abused two victims. So there, God. It's horrendous. Horrific. He hates God. He craves evil. He boasts of it. It makes him happy. I think as people reading this psalm, We should hate what this person is doing. We should hate it. Then, in the next few verses, we see what the evil person actually does. We see a bit more of that detail. He crushes the helpless. He crushes the helpless. Again, he's deliberate. He lies in wait for the helpless. Did you see that there? It says that three times. He lies in wait. In verse 8 and verse 9, he lies in wait. And he has no shame in picking on those who cannot defend themselves. He murders the innocent, verse 8. Verse 9, he catches the helpless. They can't defend themselves. He doesn't care. Doesn't care. And the results are devastating. He murders Verse 9, verse 10 rather, his victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. Anders Breivik crushed 69 victims. He lay in wait for them. He picked on people who could not defend themselves and he crushed them. He killed them. All from the cravings of his heart. And what upsets the psalmist is that this person seems unaccountable. Totally unaccountable. God seems to stand far off and do nothing, remember? And this guy can just get away with it. He's unaccountable. And it's because God seems to stand far off that this man hasn't, he hasn't a conscience that's just not burdened in any way. Did you see that in those verses? This guy just just does not care one little bit about the people he has murdered. He does not care one little bit about what God says is right and wrong. Doesn't care. There is no part of his conscience that thinks, hmm, maybe I shouldn't do this. No part. And you see that in Anders Breivik, for example. His conscience just totally unburdens. Yes, so he was caught. And he's in prison now. But does he see that what he did was wrong? No. Here's a quote from him. He says this. To be imprisoned for life or to die as a martyr is the greatest honor a man or woman may experience in their lives. Honor. Brave his conscience is clear. It's not burdened at all. He thinks he's fine to do what he did. The thing is, if you believe or want to believe that there is no God or no absolute moral authority in the universe, then that's where the logic takes you, actually. That's where the logic takes you. Of course, uh, not every atheist acts nearly as badly as Anders Breivik or this evil man in the psalm. But that's where the logic takes you. That's the logic of this psalm. Uh, Friedrich uh, Nietzsche was a famous um, atheistic philosopher. And he puts it this way. He put it this way. He said, if there is no God, then you have your way. I have my way. As, As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it does not exist. It doesn't exist. If there is no God, there is no right way, as it were. So do what you want. And Nietzsche saw where that logic takes you. He said, because there is no right and no wrong, the best thing is just to gain power over people, to make them do what you want. There's no right or wrong, so just bully people. Get what you want. He saw the logic of that, because no one's going to hold you to account. So this is why the psalmist is so upset. So upset. He's thinking, God, if you would just show yourself, this guy would know that what he does is wrong. This guy doesn't care, God. Make him care. Stop making it worse. Intervene. Show him he should care. And you get the sense in these verses of the psalmist crying to God, going through all the awful, evil things this person is doing. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Look at all this evil. What are you going to do? Intervene. Show him what's right. So we've seen now, we've seen the heart of the cry. And we've seen the content of the cry. Well, what's next? What's next? Well, we'll move on now to the climax of the cry. The climax of the cry. That's verses 12 to 18, the last section. Verse 12 is something of a turning point, really. Something of a turning point. Here in verse 12, the psalmist directly calls on God to act. Verse 12, arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. He's saying, stand up and do something, Lord. Now the phrase, lift up your hands, um, is a way of declaring, really, that God is powerful and good. Uh, In Bible language, hand is symbolic of strength and power. And in the Bible, God's hand, again and again, is against evil. It's against evil. God is good. He's hostile to evil. So here the psalmist is declaring those things. Arise, Lord, show your power against evil. Show your goodness. You hate evil, I know that. And then in verse 15, do that, God, by breaking the arm of the wicked and evil man. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Again, symbolically, he's saying, stop the man. Break him. Break his plans. Christians are not expected to be okay with evil and let it go. Of course, it's right and important for Christians to call on God to stop people doing evil things. But in this psalm, in this psalm, does God actually intervene? There's a question. Does he actually intervene? In one sense, um, he does not In one sense, he does not. Because by the end of the psalm, the situation has not really changed, actually. The evil person is still out there. He's still out there. And that is hard to take. Very hard to take. But in another sense, by the end of the psalm, something has changed. By the end, the psalmist does take courage As he waits for God to intervene, he does take courage. And we'll see that in a few ways. Let's look at them. First, he knows that God sees the evil going on. So verse 14, verse 14, at the bottom there. But you, God, do see trouble and grief. God does see. He does not close his eyes, as it were. That was the fear. He does see. And not only does God see, but God also hears. Verse 17. You hear, O Lord, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You listen to their cry. When victims cry to God, he listens. He does not block his ears. He listens. And when anyone cries to God on behalf of, of victims, as the psalmist is doing here, God listens. Has God been listening to Psalm 10 as the psalm psalmist wrote down and read it out through his tears? Yes, he has. He hears and he listens. By this point in the psalm, the psalmist is sure of that. He is sure of that. And that assurance gives him courage Verse 17, Lord, you hear the afflicted, you encourage them. There's a real sense here that the psalmist himself takes courage from knowing that God hears and listens to people's cries. And that's all because the psalmist has a relationship with God. He can cry out to God, he can pour out his heart to God, And even just by crying to God like this, God restores him in some way. God gives him courage. Not everything is perfect out there. Far from it. Far from it. Waiting for evil to stop can be very hard. The wait is long. But if. You have a relationship with God, which means nowadays if you have come to God by trusting in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection on your behalf, and now you know God's love and his goodness, and you have his spirit in you too, if you have a relationship with God, then he will give you the courage to keep trusting him, even when the evil around you is so painful to see. The psalmist here knows God. He calls him you. Do you see that? You, Lord. He talks to him. He cries to him. He knows he can trust God, even in the cries and the confusion. And so he can say, from verse 16, and so he can say, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. if you're here today and you would not say that you trust in Jesus Christ I wonder what you make of this song I wonder many people say they do not believe in God or any absolute moral authority and yet they do get upset when they see evil in the world a question for you is that is that contradictory if in your heart that you know evil is an outcry doesn't the existence of a good, creator God, make best sense of that? And maybe we could talk about that after the service. That would be a great thing to talk about. Now for all of us here, um, Christian or not, this psalm does call us to be sorry to God for when we treat people unfairly and thinking we can get away with it. We are not all Anders Breivik, and yet we all have many kinds of evil boasts in our hearts. And for those of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we are Christians. This psalm helps us as we kind of look on at the evil around us, whether it's in our neighborhoods, our homes, or abroad, wherever. First, it shows us. It shows us it is right to want to do what we can to help the helpless and call evil to account. It's good to do those things. We must also be realistic. The world as it is will never be perfect because the human heart is the heart of the problem. So what about when we're crying to God about evil and nothing seems to change? The psalm tells us it's right to cry out to God It's okay to say, why, Lord, why? It's okay to say that. It's also right to say, arise, Lord. Do something about it. It's right to pray for those things. But even when nothing seems to change, the psalm tells us, take courage from the sheer assurance that God sees and God hears. In that sense, we're called to hide ourselves in God, to place ourselves in his care, even in the cries and the confusion. And in fact, of course, we're called to hide ourselves in Jesus Christ, in him, because Christians can know that God ultimately does not stand far off from evil. Because God himself has stepped into the horror of human evil. God the Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth, took on human flesh, and personally experienced the horror of human evil all around him. He was an innocent man and became the victim. He was crucified to death by people who hated God he was crushed to death by them and yet through that horror god actually breaks evil he actually breaks evil in the sense that jesus was crushed on our behalf on behalf of humanity so that whatever evil you experience in this world for whoever trusts in jesus that evil will come to an end one day So even when we look around at evil and are confused and we cry out to God, we can take courage. God is good and God is powerful. He has shown that by breaking evil on the cross. So as we cry to God, we know that he sees, he hears, he listens, he is good. And if you're trusting in him, that knowledge, that, that assurance makes all the difference. All the difference. Let's pray. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, these are very tough words. But we do want to thank you, Lord. We do want to thank you that you have shown us why people do evil, what's going on in their hearts. And we thank you that you allow us, encourage us to cry to you that we are not alone. We thank you that you see, you hear, you listen. We pray that you would break the arm of people doing evil around the world today in London and all around the world. We pray that as we look out on the evil around us, we would care about it and that we, you would help us to trust you in that because you are good and you have broken the power of evil through the death of Jesus Christ. So we praise you and we thank you. Please help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.